All right, welcome back to the listener's commentary on 1 Corinthians. In this recording, we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. And this paragraph sits in the middle of the second major section of the book of 1 Corinthians. So the first major section, chapter 1 through most of chapter 4, and then the second uh, section picks up at, right at the end of chapter 4 and goes all the way through chapter 7. And this second section mainly deals with uh, issues and questions related to sexuality and marriage. And so the preceding paragraph to the one we're going to look at in this recording in chapter 5 uh, dealt with a man who was sleeping with his stepmom. And so that's chapter 5, 1 through 13. And the paragraph immediately after this one in this recording is going to deal with going to prostitutes. And then chapter 7 is actually going to deal with questions that the Corinthians asked about sexuality and about marriage in particular. This paragraph, chapter 6, 1 through 11, is actually about lawsuits. And that means it's the one paragraph in this larger section that's not directly about sexuality and marriage. And so that raises the question, how does it fit in here? And it seems to me, as you read it in context, that this, this paragraph, chapter 6, 1 through 11, sort of fits in as a, and while we're on that subject sort of connection, that's how I think it fits. While we're on that subject, let me also talk about, here's what I mean. In chapter 5, verses 1 through 13, the first major paragraph in this larger section, uh, it deals with this man who's sleeping with his stepmom. And chapter 5, verse 11 mentions sexually immoral person or greedy person or idolater or verbally abusive or habitually drunk or swindler. Well, guess what? This paragraph, chapter 6, 1 through 11, in verses 9 and 10, mentions many of those same vices with a few extra ones added in. It mentions the sexually immoral and idolaters and adulterers and homosexuals and thieves and the greedy and the habitually drunk and the verbally abusers and the swindlers. And so as Paul wraps up his discussion of the immoral man in chapter 5, he broadens out the application of what he said there to other sinful practices. The second way it's clear that there's some sort of loose connection between 5, 1 through 13 and 6, 1 through 11 is that 5, 12, and 13 describes dealing with such people who have these sinful practices in the church. That is the church holding court to judge their behaviors wrong, to call them to repentance and welcome them back into the community. And immediately, chapter 6, the paragraph we're looking at here, Paul begins talking about doing that in uh, a rather wrong sort of way by going to the secular courts rather than doing that within the church. And so it seems that 6, 1 through 11 is connected like this. Paul wants them to gather and judge the immoral brother's behaviors wrong, the man who's sleeping with his stepmom, and remove him from fellowship so that hopefully he will repent and there'll be a clear path back to him being restored to the community. And then he's like, and while we're on that topic, let's talk about this more by talking about the issue of taking your brother or your sister to the public civil courts in town. And so it's thematically connected to the way Paul wants them to handle sinning members in the church. He wants them to deal with those issues, not take them before the public courts in town. 
So at the end of chapter five, he says, God will judge outsiders, but it's your responsibility to judge those within the church. And then immediately he begins chapter six by saying, does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? And so the the issue is taking your brother or sister, your fellow Christian, to the civil courts in town rather than bringing him before the leaders of the church to help you sort out whatever this dispute is. In fact, the phrase at the beginning of chapter 6, it says, go to law. When he has a case against his neighbor, dare go to law before the unrighteous. Well, that phrase, go to law, is actually just a different form of the same word that's translated judge right at the end of chapter 5. And again, that shows the kind of the logical and linguistic connection, even if it's loose, between the end of chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6. Paul is saying there in chapter 5, I want you guys to hold court against that sinning man, remove him from fellowship, give him a clear path of restoration so that hopefully he'll repent. And while we're on that, what if you have some matter of dispute between your brother or sister? Dare you go to the public civil courts rather than to the church to sort that out? Don't you think the church can judge between the two of you and sort it out? So that's the issue. The issue here is some sort of dispute or complaint between two Christians, and they're wanting to go to the public courts to sort it out. And part of the problem is, in Corinth and in the Greco-Roman world as a whole, the secular courts were notoriously driven by the key social values of the day, that is by wealth and status and honor, and as a result, they were often incredibly unjust. They favored the those with high honor and high wealth over the other people. In fact, one first century writer, a man by the name of Diachrysostom, said this specifically about Corinth. He said, there were lawyers there in Corinth, innumerable, perverting justice. So Paul's aghast. He's shocked that they would actually do that, that they would go to those lawyers, those public courts, rather than to actually go to the church for help. So, verse 1 raises the topic with an initial question. And after that initial question, Paul continues to ask a series of penetrating questions to get the Corinthians to examine themselves and to see how foolish and how self-destructive to their community going to the public courts actually is. And so, verse 2 follows up with this question. Or don't you know that the saints will judge the world? Paul just assumes that they should know that. Now, We may not know that. They may have not known that. But Paul expects them to know that, wants them to know that. And in some sense, according to Paul here, and really in biblical theology, the saints, that is God's people, will judge the world. And to judge in biblical thought included more than just sitting behind a bench and rendering legal judgment. Think of, for example, the judges in the Old Testament, in the book of Judges, who did more than just render legal judgments, or even the elders in the city gate in the Old Testament and somewhat in the New Testament, whose job it was to care for the community and to lead the community and to shape community values. And so being a judge involved a measure of leadership. Part of that 
was settling disputes, that is, sorting out civil cases. Part of it was rendering legal judgment in criminal cases. And so Paul's point in asking this question in verse 2 is that in the world to come, the Messiah's people will lead and rule over that world, including rendering judgment. Not only that, there's also what's said in Daniel chapter 7, verse 22, about the saints judging or being involved somehow in judgment on the world's power systems and power structures, and that somehow the saints are going to be involved in that. And so, although we don't know exactly what that will look like and how that will play out, we do know that according to Scripture, with the bits and pieces we have, God's people will be judges over the world to come. And so Paul's point by this question is, so since that's who you are, since that's who we are, shouldn't we begin to judge our own affairs now as God's people according to the wisdom and value of God's kingdom rather than going to secular courts? He actually then follows that question up in the second half of verse 2 with this question. If the world is going to be judged by you, are you not competent to form the smallest law courts? Like, if you're eventually going to have uh, judgment over the whole world, don't you think you can handle a simple matter of dispute between two brothers and sisters now? There's actually two options for how to best translate this question, uh, particularly the last phrase where it says the smallest courts. Um, one is, as here, the smallest law courts. The other is the smallest law cases. The key word there is criterion. That's the word that's translated smallest law courts or smallest cases. And most often the word criterion refers to the law court or the court of justice. But there is evidence that sometimes it referred to the legal case itself. And that actually seems to make better sense here in context. If the world is going to be judged by you, aren't you competent to judge the smallest cases now? In fact, in order to make the smallest law courts work, this translation, the New American Standard, has added the, the phrase to form. Aren't you competent to form the smallest law courts? Instead of just saying, aren't you competent for the smallest law cases or legal cases. And so that actually fits the grammar here and fits the context best. And so if the world's going to be judged by you, don't you think you can handle small little cases of dispute now? Uh, and then he emphasizes the point in the follow-up question in verse 3. He says, do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? And so again, he's emphasizing from greater to lesser. If we're going to judge the world, can't you handle small cases? If we're going to judge angels, can't you handle matters of this present life? What's this whole idea of judging angels? Well, again, not 100% clear in Scripture, but it probably refers to uh, judging fallen angels. According to the Bible, fallen angels are awaiting judgment. For example, 2 Peter 2.4 or Jude verse 6. Fallen angels are awaiting judgment. Now, the Bible doesn't say anything uh, specifically about what our role in judging those angels would be, which means we got to be really careful and not read too much into this, not create large theological schemes about that. But Paul's point here is that if we in some sort of way are responsible for that big future cosmic task, don't you think we could begin to handle the more mundane matters of everyday life? 
And so these rhetorical questions here are really trying to drive home the point that you guys can deal with this. Again, he follows that up in verse 4 with another question. This question, a little bit tricky, but here's the way it's translated. It says, so if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? Now, as I just noted, this question is a little bit tricky, and scholars debate exactly how it should be translated and thus how it should be read. The two main issues are this. First, is it a question or is it a command? The reality is, in the ancient Greek language, like many ancient languages, there were no punctuation marks. And so sometimes it can be hard to tell. In fact, sometimes the wording, the grammar, is exactly the same in a question or in a command. And that's the case here. So this phrase could be translated, do you appoint, as in a question, or it could also be translated as appoint, those who are of no account, telling them what to do, command. So that's the first issue. Uh, the second main issue is this, who are the judges of no account? Are those believers or are those unbelievers? So is it a question or a command? And who are the judges of no account? That's the, the challenges with this question. So it could be translated as a question as it is here in the New American Standard. And the idea then is that do you actually give place to unbelievers out there in the public civil courts to judge simple civil disputes in the church? That is between members of the church. That would be the question. Or it could be translated as a command telling them to appoint ordinary, lowly people in the church to judge such disputes. Now, the scholarly arguments around this translation issue is, are, are long and complicated, but in the end, it seems best to me to favor translating it as a question as it is here in the New American Standard. It just seems to fit the flow of thought better. It makes better sense, actually, of the grammar itself. And it seems more likely that those of no account best refers to unbelieving civil judges in public courts than as a way to actually refer to Christians here. I just can't fathom Paul referring to Christians in the church as those of no account. So uh, I think it's better to translate it as a question, raising this issue of, are you really going to let people out there in the secular court who are, who are of no account in God's people, sort out your disputes. Not only that, the phrase at the very beginning of the question that's translated law courts. So if you have law courts, again, it's that word criterion we talked about up above uh, that we said is probably best here, not referring to the court itself, but to the legal cases. And the idea is, is that if you guys have like such disputes, cases against each other regarding matters of everyday life. And Paul's like, I, I, the way it's worded is, I just can't believe you actually are so upset with each other. You're, you're thinking of taking it to court. But if you actually have those kind of cases, do you, who are going to judge the world and judge angels, do you actually go outside the church to unbelieving judges to sort that out for you? That seems to be the force of the question here in verse four. And Paul's like, really? In fact, he's so shocked that they're either considering doing this or maybe that some have already done this. He's so shocked by that that look at what he says in verse five. He says, I say this to your shame. Like, if you're going to do that, 
I actually, I actually say this to your shame. The fact that they would do this is so contrary to the values and the standards of God's people that it brings shame on them if they do it. And Paul is saying it for that purpose, to shame someone in their culture. In our culture, shame is almost always negative. We typically use you know, guilt and exhortation and challenge um, to motivate behavioral change. Not in their culture. In their culture, to shame someone could be a very positive thing. It was used, it was a positive tool used to motivate people to change their behavior. It was an important way of challenging people to realize you're out of step with the values and the practices of our community. It was a, they're a collectivist culture. They, right, they're not individualists. And so it's like, this is the way we act as the people of God, and this behavior is completely out of step with that, and it will bring shame on you if you do it. And so when when shame was used rightly and well in their culture, it had great positive social power to affect change. It was a way to help people learn and grow, evaluate their behavior, and realize, oh man, I don't want to be out of step with the community, and I don't want to bring shame on my community. Therefore, I'm not going to carry out that behavior. So Paul says, I say this to your shame. And so Paul's goal is to show them how shameful such behavior is so that they'll be persuaded to change their ways. And it's really pretty ironic uh, in the situation in Corinth. Remember, Paul just spent the first four chapters of this letter challenging their view of wisdom, telling them that their view of wisdom was incredibly worldly. They want to be seen as so wise, but they got it all wrong. That was chapters one through four. Well, if that's actually the case, if you're actually that wise, don't you think you could actually sort out such cases yourself? And so Paul asks another rhetorical question. He says, is it so that there is not among you anyone wise enough who will be able to decide between his brothers and his sisters, but brother goes to law with brother and that before unbelievers? Like, isn't there anyone wise enough among you who can sort this out? I mean, you guys want to be think of yourself as so wise. Isn't there anyone wise enough to actually help you guys deal with these matters of basic civil dispute between brothers and sisters? In fact, the fact that you're going to public civil courts to, to deal with or, or considering that, that, that would suggest this is such shameful behavior, it would suggest that you've actually already lost. Look at verse 7. He says, actually then, it's already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. You guys have these minor disputes, and the language seems to suggest that. Like, you guys have basic matters of everyday life where you've got a conflict with each other, and you turn them into lawsuits, and you do that before unbelievers. And that's already a complete failure to live out who you are as the people of God. That's a complete failure to act with godly wisdom. It's already a defeat for you as a group of people, you have brought such disgrace on your people that you would do this. You can't even manage your own affairs. In fact, Paul goes on in the second half of verse 7 and says, you know what would be better? To just let it go. Look what he says in the second half of verse 7. Why not rather suffer the wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Like, instead of bringing shame on your community and on yourself by defending yourself and your rights and your status, why not just deal with it? 
Why not just suffer the loss, suffer the wrong? Why, why make them pay? And this is actually the way of the cross. The way of the cross is suffer the loss for yourself. Absorb the cost for yourself, right? That's what Jesus did on our behalf. Instead of making us pay, he absorbed the cost himself so that we didn't have to. Jesus is the one who said, you know, don't return evil for evil. Do good to those who harm you. So rather than bicker and fight and then take it to the courts, the public civil courts, why not rather just suffer the wrong? Then he goes on in verse 8 and says, On the contrary, you yourselves do wrong and you defraud. And so not only are you taking the courts and doing this, but you're wronging each other and defrauding each other. And it's like this is a complete violation of the love that is expected between the members of the church as the people of God. You do this, he says, to your brothers and sisters. Like we are the new family of Jesus and you're wronging each other and defrauding each other and then taking it to the courts. And the courts themselves could very likely have contributed to some of this wronging and defrauding because, as I noted above, they were invariably linked to wealth and status and honor and power. So somebody with more of those things almost always came out ahead in a civil court case in a place like Corinth. And so now they're using this corrupt, unjust system against their brothers and sisters in Christ. Then what Paul does in verses 9 through 11 is he wraps up this whole section just by reminding them of like, we have a different culture. We have different values. We're part of God's kingdom and God's family. So we operate differently. And the unrighteous, that is those outside of the community of faith, those outside of the people of God, they've got a whole different set of standards and their standards are completely different than the kingdom of God. Why would you go to them? Here's the way he emphasizes that. He says, or don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? The unrighteous in this context refers to those people outside the community of faith, those outside of Christ. They operate differently. They have different values. They're part of the kingdom of this world, not the kingdom of God. Uh, the kingdom where God's will and God's values and Christ's example reign supreme. And so why would you want to entrust your disputes to people like that? Um, and those unrighteous people, he says, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. They'll find themselves outside of God's kingdom. Um, and God's kingdom is the kingdom that Jesus launched and that one day he will bring fully and completely when he returns. And so that's the kingdom that we are a part of. It's God's people and it's got its own culture and its own values. And so we need to operate according to that. Then Paul amplifies this a bit by describing some of those unrighteous practices and unrighteous values that show up in the kingdom of man that are supposed to be outside of the kingdom of God. So he says, do not be deceived. Now, remember, this is addressed to Christians. It's a call to Christians not to be deceived about the significance of behavior and lifestyle and values. Behavior and lifestyle is the key indicator of whether or not someone is a part of Christ. And so whether we're a part of God's kingdom or the saints is manifested by behavior and lifestyle. So don't be deceived about that. In fact, remember when Jesus, at the beginning of the Gospels, comes on the scene and launches his ministry, the, the Gospel writers summarize the basic message of his preaching as, Repent, 
for the kingdom of God is at hand. And so repent means to change your ways. And so to place our faith in Christ requires repentance and submitting to his kingship. And thus, we must not be deceived about this and think it's anything less. And so don't be deceived. And then what Paul does is he's going to list off some of those cultural practices that are outside the kingdom of God. He says, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor those habitually drunk, nor viewable verbal abusers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And so he lists off, this is typically called a vice list by scholars. He lists off just various vices or sinful practices that are that characterize the culture of Corinth and the world of his day and are often typical of the kingdom of man in contrast to the kingdom of God. So sexually immoral. What's that? Well, that refers to any kind of sexual activity that's contrary to God's design and purpose for sex. Idolaters. We know what that is. Pagan worship was everywhere. Temples and idol worship was everywhere. It's to worship false gods. Adulterers. Uh, that refers specifically to those who violate the marriage covenant by having sex with someone other than their spouse. Next, he mentions homosexuals. And the Greek is actually far more precise and comprehensive than this translation. In Greek, it's actually two words, not just one, that's translated homosexuals. And it actually refers to behavior, not like some status or something like that. The two words emphasize homosexual practice. The first word is malakoi. It refers to males who present themselves in a female fashion so they can be more attractive to other males. And it also refers to those who are the passive partner in homosexual sex. The second word is arsenakoitai, which refers to males who are the active partner in homosexual sex. It's actually a compound word of the word for male and bed. So it's a male who beds males. The word for Paul derived from God's instructions in the Old Testament law in Leviticus chapter 20, where it says, if a man lies with a male as with a female. The Greek translation of that verse actually has these two words, male and bed, side by side in that verse. So that's probably where the word originated for the Apostle Paul. That's the word we have here is two words that emphasize homosexual practice and homosexual behavior. Then he says thieves, those who steal, the greedy, uh, those who are habitually drunk, that's pretty clear. And swindlers, that's who people who defraud and trick and try to uh, take advantage of people. These are some of the distinctive kinds of practices that were well known in their culture and that characterized life outside of Christ. The life, in other words, of the righteous. The life that's contrary to the kingdom of God. The unrighteous people who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the Corinthians, well, they're different. Some of them used to be that, but they've been changed. So look at verse 11. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. And so you've moved from that kingdom out there, the kingdom of man that lived like that, into a new kingdom. And it was marked by you being washed, sanctified, and justified in the name of Jesus and in the Spirit. Notice that this says, you were, past tense. That's how you used to live. That's what used to define you. But 
Not anymore. In fact, the the but in the middle of verse 11, but you were sanctified. That's Allah in Greek. That's a strong contrast word. All of that changed. Like when you came into Christ, you became part of a new family and a new kingdom with new values and a new culture. So all of that changed. He says, but you were washed. That is cleansed of your sin. Seems that it likely alludes to baptism since baptism was the routine entry right into the family of God in the first century. People were baptized usually right away. Usually on the same day they came to faith in Jesus when you read the book of Acts. In fact, when you think of Paul's conversion, Acts twenty-two sixteen, 16, Ananias comes to the apostle Paul and says to him, arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. And so notice that wash away your sins is directly tied to baptism there. And thus Paul would naturally associate washing with baptism from the start of his Christian life. So you were washed. You were sanctified. The word sanctified derives from the same word as the word for holy. It means to be set apart, consecrated, or dedicated to God for his purposes and for his way of acting. And so you were sanctified to God. And then you were justified, which means you were declared righteous. It's a legal term that refers to being given a favorable verdict and put into a right relationship with God and his law. And all of this, Paul says here, happens in the name of Jesus and in the Spirit of God. And so together, uh, Jesus and the Spirit, they're the ones that make all of this change happen in the Corinthians and in us. And so the Corinthians are participants in a different kingdom with different values. And the fact that they're going to law courts before the unrighteous, Paul just says, no, that is contrary to the way we should act. That actually is a behavior that should make you feel shame and thus want to change your behavior. Now, before we leave it, let me just offer a couple of reflections. The first is settling disputes between believers. Uh, that when believers have uh, matters of basic dispute between, every, you know, like matters of everyday life, like we as the family of God should be able to come around that and help sort that out and uh, help them with those basic disputes. And we who maybe are in the midst of those disputes need to look to the wisdom and the leadership of those who um, are leaders in the church and who know God's word and know God's law and who walk with Christ to help us figure out what's the best way forward. And if we can't figure that out, then as Paul says, why not rather be wronged? And that's really the second reflection. Why not rather be wronged? And again, this is so countercultural. I mean, we have rights and you don't know what he did and they should pay for that, right? That's the way we, we feel and we operate. But the way of Jesus is to overcome evil with good, not paying back harm for harm, not paying back wrong with wrong, not protecting our rights. Like that's not the way the kingdom of God operates. Now, ideally, between brothers and sisters in Jesus, we'd be of more noble character, and if we wronged someone, we'd own it and we'd make amends. Or even more, we would really work hard to never cheat or wrong each other. But if that does happen, is there anyone wise enough in the church to help us sort that out? That's what Paul asks, and that's what we should be asking ourselves. 
Hey, thanks for tuning in to this session of the Listener's Commentary. The Listener's Commentary is a listener-supported, crowdfunded Bible teaching ministry that's made possible by the generous support of people just like you. So to all of you who have supported, continue to support this ministry, may God bless you for it. Thanks a ton. And if you've been impacted in some way by this ministry, uh, would you consider prayerfully giving a gift to help this ministry continue to grow and expand and reach people all around the world. You can do that by swinging over to listenerscommentary.com, clicking on the Give button, and you can set up a one-time or a recurring monthly donation right there. If you want to make it recurring, there's a little box that says Make This Monthly. Click that little box, and it'll set up a monthly donation for you. Thanks a ton for your support.